Hi, you are listening to the IDH Sustainable Trade Podcast, and I'm Guilherme Justo, Program Manager of Soy at IDH, the Sustainable Trade Initiative. Today's podcast will be on the process of monitoring responsible soy, looking at both the challenge and progress that has been made within the sustainability of the soy supply chain. To do that, we will be referring to the new data recently published in the European Soy Monitor Report, covering the 2019 data. This is the third report released by IDH that analyzes the soy imports of the main European countries and the percentage of these imports that can be considered as responsible soy. I'm joined by Helene van den Homberg, Senior Advisor and Convener for Sustainable Agrocommodities at IUCN Netherlands. She's also the coordinator of the Dutch Soy Platform and the coordinator of CSI, the Collaborative Soy Initiative. I'm also joined by Dautzen Wagner, Sustainable Agriculture Expert at Schutelaren Partners. She was also leading the elaboration of this report. Together, we will discuss the hard data and shed light on what must be our next steps if you wish to increase the uptake of responsible soy in Europe. So, without further ado, let's start our conversation with a question for Dalton. So, Dalton, how can we define responsible soy? For example, what was the criteria used in the soy monitor report? Yeah, thank you, Guilherme. That's a good question. And actually, it can have a podcast on its own. It's also a bit of a tricky question. So let me first answer this very technical. So in the, the three soy monitoring reports that have been published until now, so 2017, 18, and 2019, the uptake of FEFAC Soy Sourcing Guidelines Compliance Soy is reported, and the uptake of deforestation-free soy. And I have to say it's certified deforestation-free soy. So that's the really technical question. We look on the one hand to the FEFAC soy sourcing guidelines that have been developed in 2015 and several different soy standards have been benchmarked against these guidelines, resulting in actually a quite long list of 19 soy standards that are considered uh, compliant with the FEFAC soy sourcing guidelines. And a subsection of those 19, actually six, are also considered to credibly guarantee deforestation-free soy. So those two were uh, used as definitions in the reports until now, coming to this set of 19 standards that are considered in line with the FEFA guidelines and this subset of, a subset of six that are also considered uh, deforestation-free. Helene, as an expert in sustainability issues related to the soy, what are the challenges that you see for the soy supply chain in terms of sustainability? And why is a soy monitoring report necessary? Is there anything that strikes you when you look at the new data? Yeah, thank you for those uh, questions. Well, I think it's, uh, it, it's quite known that there are several issues uh, of sustainability uh, challenges, so deforestation and, and conversion of ecosystems, but also issues, for example, of labor rights and community relations, and, uh, for example, the use of responsible 
or the responsible use of, of chemicals, herbicides and pesticides, or soil and water management. And all of this is important. Eh? And standards also often do include uh, these things. So I think the soil monitoring report indeed is an important uh, thermometer or a barometer for progress. When we started, together with IDH, the first European soil monitor, in 2019. We did that uh, because we saw that in the Netherlands we were running into uh, limitations. We have been involved in the Netherlands already with RTRS for a long time. But how about the rest of Europe? Eh? How about moving further uh, also on with mass balance or with physical uh, uh, options for deforestation-free trade? So um, we thought it would be important to have that picture. And now uh, for three subsequent years, we've had that picture. And I think it's, it's interesting uh, to see. So who's doing what? How is progress going? And that, that gives also options for, for collaboration. What I, what I see is that there is some progress. And now you could say that a quarter is a certified deforestation free, more or less. It's not exactly clear, maybe while reading what is book and claim and what is physical. But its, uh, it's progress is not enough uh, as yet. But I think it's important. And as Doutson has explained, six of those standards are uh, deforestation free. And I tend to look at them because not only on this important aspect of deforestation, but also in terms of criteria and control and their transparency, uh, where they uh, where they are source, source and who is being certified, etc. They they do a good job these standards. So I think it is uh, important to support them throughout Europe. I think also it's interesting to see that, well, for example, the UK has made quite some progress and Southern Europe uh, may have some concerns of how they want to continue. Uh, and it's shown that national soil initiatives can help push ambition and make progress. And I think that's interesting for those of us uh, involved in national soil initiatives. What it, it focuses on is domestic uh, consumption, most of all. And while the Netherlands, of course, is a, is a trading nation, we are a, a big, well, not a big user, but we are a user of about 2 million uh, tons of soy. We consume less of, than half of that, and uh, the rest is exported as embedded soy. So for national consumption, we're quite okay in, in covering it with, uh, with mostly RTRS uh, credits and part of the uh, export as well. But uh, a part of it still has to step up, I think. And also, of course, it's important to move forward on, on physical deforestation-free soy together with other European countries. We'll come back to that, I'm sure, in this podcast. I must say that uh, data collection plays a, a huge role in these kind of reports and collecting data that is so decentralized must be a huge challenge. So in that sense, what progress do we, do we see from the data collected in 2019 European Soil Monitor report compared with the previous year? Yeah, that's a, a very, very good question. And it's very true that it's a challenge to get all the data grouped together and make a <laughs> clear picture out of it. Maybe it's good that I explain a bit what we are actually doing in the, in the report and also the type of data sources that we use and why we are doing that. I hope that also gives some more insights in the type of results that we got. And later on, I can also dive into the results compared to uh, last year and the year before. So if we look at this, Soy monitoring reporter, there are actually three 
basic sources of, of information, of data. The first one is publicly available trade data, mainly from Eurostat. That is yeah, data everybody can look up at the Eurostat database, publicly available, very transparent. So that's very good to, uh, to use as much as possible, we, we tend to say. The second source of information are actually those 19 uh, soy standards that are positively benchmarked against the Fairfax Foresourcing Guidelines. So there we ask for how much volume have you certified this year, where did it go to, to what specific European countries. Often, I have to admit, that is not known. So often traceability of this uh, certified soy is ending somewhere in the European harbors, and then it becomes a bit more fuzzy. There are some exceptions. For instance, RGMS, of course, has a very clear database with all the mass balance transactions and the book and claim transactions. But for most of the 19, it is more tricky. And it's also important to say that some of the 19 do not want to publish their information. So that is also a tricky aspect. So then we have Eurostat data. We have the data from those uh, soy standards. And then uh, the last source of information are the feed associations. So the members of FAFAC. Eh? FAFAC has released its, its FAFAC soy sourcing guidelines and hence also feels a responsibility and an ownership about this report and wants to report as well as, as possible about the uptake of FAFAC compliance soy amongst their own uh, members. So those data sources are most important for both the FEFA compliant percentage and also the deforestation free percentage. And I already said that those 19 soy standards together are the FEFA compliant percentage and the six soy standards that were actually selected by a separate benchmark study by Profundo is we calculate the soy footprint of that specific country. That means that we look into uh, soybean imports, soybean meal imports, and soybean and soybean meal export. So what remains, the difference between those remains in the country. Then sometimes there is soy production in the country. Uh, for instance, especially in Italy, there is a lot. There is a bit in France. There is a bit in Eastern European countries. But there's also sometimes some soy production that also is added up to that. And then, uh, last but not least, we look into embedded soy. So there are different HS codes for beef, for pork, for dairy, for eggs, for milk, uh, cheese. And we look into all incoming flows of those crops per, uh, of those goods per country, and also the outgoing flows of those goods per country. And then what remains is what's left in that specific country. And if we add those things up, so the balance of import versus export of direct soy, own soy production, if any, and the balance for embedded soy, then we end up with the soybean meal that is available for domestic consumption. And that is all the time our reference point. So what remains in the country for consumption. And that figure is then compared with the total volume of FEFA compliance soy that we obtain both from, uh, from the feed associations. So for instance, in the Netherlands, we have a figure from the FEDI, um, for, uh, for Belgium from BFA, etc., etc. Plus, and that's also important to mention, we also know from RTRS that often downstream companies like uh, Ahold or Lidl or Hilton Hotels or KLM also buy responsible soy certificates to cover their footprint and we add that together and divide it through the, the soybean meal available for uh, domestic consumption and then we arrive at the percentage FEFA compliant and at the percentage of uh, deforestation free soy. 
And I can imagine it's a bit difficult to follow when I'm just saying this, but I hope in the report you can find this explanation as well. And that is our reference value for these two percentages. If you look at the data in 2019, you can look at it at three different levels. First of all, you will see that overall, so all the FEFA compliance were coming to, uh, to Europe. And when I talk about Europe, I talk about the European Union plus Norway and Switzerland. So AE28 plus is our uh, reference area. Then we see an increase in uh, uptake of FEFAC soy sourcing compliant soy of 38 in 2018 and 42 in 2019. So there's a small increase there. If we then look at certified deforestation free soy, we had 19% in 2018, and we are now moving up to 25% in 2019. So that's also a small increase, which is, of course, uh, a positive trend. And then the second level of analysis is actually the specific countries. And so we are reporting about 13 countries, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, it's 13. And what we do see there is that uh, a couple of countries remain relatively stable, but perform very well. Uh, for instance, the Netherlands and Norway and Belgium, they are really top performers, but it remains a bit stable. Then there is a group of countries that is quickly catching up. Uh, I would like to mention Finland, Sweden as well. Yeah, I think those two are Denmark, I also have to mention. And then there is a bit of a mid group of, of countries, UK, but UK made a huge step, so they are doing also really well. UK, uh, Germany, France, they're a bit in the midst. And then there is a group of countries where it doesn't seem a really big issue yet. For instance, Italy, Spain, Portugal, Poland, there, there the percentages remain very low. Our data is simply not, not available. The positive thing that, I've, that I'm seeing is that I've had conversations with people from uh, the feed associations from those countries. For instance, in, in Spain, CESFAC is doing a project with, uh, with IDH to really improve this monitoring. Also with the, the Polish representative of the Feed Association, they are actually starting to dive into this topic and they really want to do better. There is uptake of FEFA compliant soy in Poland because yeah, a lot of the, the food that's produced in Poland is also uh, going to Germany. And in Germany, there is a consumer market and a consumer demand for sustainability. So there is actually use of Donau soya, Proterra soya, maybe also a bit of RGRS. So that is something that we can expect to, to be better in the report of, of 2020. And in general, I have the feeling that this topic is really on the agenda of all the, the companies and the feed associations that we spoke with. So I hope that will be better. Uh, what I also see is that those countries that have a national soy initiative, or of course, like the Netherlands, already a very long tradition in working collectively towards responsible soy, that they are performing better than those countries that don't have a national soy initiative or such collective action. So it really makes sense to also invest there and can we bring people together? Can they uh, learn from those countries that have this tradition? And I mean, the practices are there. So let's share and, and improve together. I think that's very important. And then last but not least, the third level, that is the level of the specific soy standards. So as I said, we have this information from these 19 
soy standards, well, some of them have not shared data with us. So in the end, it's, a, it's about 10 that do actually share data. But what we see there compared to 2018 is that for most of the standards, the actual certified production is a bit lower. There are a couple of exceptions. Uh, Dona Soya was a bit higher. The SSAP program was a bit higher and ICC Plus was also a bit higher. The others were a bit lower in terms of certified volume. If we then look in, into the uptake in, your, in, in Europe of this certified soy, what we see there is, I think, very interesting. We see, for instance, for Cargill, for Dona Soya, for Proterra, for RTRS, and for ISCC, that there is really a serious growth of uptake of those specific soy standards in uh, Europe. And I'm not sure whether it's uh, accidentally, I don't think so, but those are also the standards that were considered to also offer deforestation-free soy. So since 2018, there is especially an increase in uptake of the, the standards that are also deforestation-free. And I think that is, of course, not that strange because there is an increasing interest and demand for conversion-free soy, but also soy with a low carbon footprint. And that, of course, also relates to, to conversion. So those things are interesting to see in the, the 2019 report. Is, is it perfect? No. <laughs> are there data challenges? Yes, there still are. But I think we, we, we prepared a report that is comparable to 2018 in terms of the method and the data. And we only hope in 2020 we can do even better to make it even more transparent, even more comparable and, and better understandable. This is indeed super challenging to put all this data together. And building up a bit on what you just said, I would say that transparency plays a big role here. And more transparency would, of course, benefit us all. So, Helene, in, in your opinion, how can we improve transparency and therefore increase the uptake of uh, sustainable soy? Yeah, well, that's indeed a challenge. And I think that uh, Dalton has done a great job in trying to have that transparency uh, by asking all these questions to uh, to all these standards and, and traders, etc. So I think that traders are quite key. You see that also the attention for the role of traders is growing this year. You see uh, scorecards appearing, uh, scorecards and, and traders' assessments appearing on how they do uh, on sustainability. And to ask uh, the traders to do a good job, I think financial institutions and, and buyers, but also FEFAC has an important role uh, to play. For example, be as transparent as you can be where you source and where you sell and uh, publish and apply your own standard, uh, at least, because uh, some of them have their own standards. Uh, sometimes we don't know what it is and if it's applied and to what extent and report about progress against your own sustainability commitments. And so there's quite a challenge on transparency there. And of course, you'd like them to, to increase the percentage of physical uh, delivery of responsible conversion-free soy. And they have their own responsibility against their own commitments and their own roles that they have. But of course, financiers against trade financiers, uh, buyers, but also government has a role there to, to support and, and require that. And increasingly also government should, uh, can play a role in, 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 in leveling the playing field, as they say, 
in Europe by uh, yeah, requiring mandatory due diligence and applying minimum criteria so that you, you have to scale up on applying such uh, standards and hopefully also deforestation-free. So that's the combination of being transparent, let's say, so also transparent about how you progress and the, the asks, the requirements put to, to these traders that have to do a, a good job, I think. And it's still on the, the topic of uptake of responsible soy and this question is for Outsend. Well, we see Outsend in one hand that some countries still have a long way to go to meet their zero deforestation commitments. And on the other hand, we see that there is a surplus of responsible soy produced. Why is this and how it, can it be avoided? Yeah, that's, that's of course a very interesting question and a huge dilemma. Although I have to say that this gap between supply of responsible soy and uptake is becoming smaller. So in the 2018 report, we said, hey, there is a lot of certified soy sold as conventional soy. Uh, this year, this situation is already a bit improved. So for instance, if we look at RGRS or Dona Soya, we were seeing that more certified soy actually found their way as certified soy to the end markets. That's a positive signal. On the other hand, it's true if you would look into all these beautiful zero deforestation or zero, zero conversion or responsible soy commitments, you would expect a mainstream market for responsible soy in Europe, and we don't have that. So there is indeed still a gap. Uh, I think it has to do, on the one hand, with the fact that, that these deforestation commitments often remain at a, at a too fake level or are not translated into actual purchase requirements. So there's a difference between policy and actual buying practices. And that's something that really needs to be solved. And I hope and I believe that the accountability framework is doing a great job there in at least making these commitments a lot more comparable and practical. Uh, I also hope and believe that the national soy initiatives can help companies to, to, to know how these things can be done. And it can be complicated, of course. If you are a producer of chocolate or of baby food and you're buying only very small for instance dairy ingredients or even meat ingredients and you have to think about responsible soy in the compound feed of the animals that produce the milk or the meat that's a different world that's so far away on the other hand it can be done you know we have all the examples and it's also not rocket science so i do believe that in terms of sharing experience showing best practices these national soy initiatives can play a very big role. And also this accountability framework helps to make these commitments that are sometimes a bit fake, a lot smarter. And I also think it's important to, to inform companies that have a specific commitment that there are different options for them. And that's also why this new FAFAC transparency tool, I think it's now called the gateway to responsible soy, is probably a good tool because companies can go to that gateway and find different options for conversion-free soy. There are specific filters, so if they want to have, for instance, must balance or segregated conversion-free soy uh, from a specific cut off date, say 2008 or 2010, then they can really click and, and, and filter all the, the standards that do meet those requirements. So in that sense, there is also more market transparency provided by FAFAC to all the companies that want to really materialize their commitments. Um, and there is no excuse anymore in terms of, we don't know what to buy, or is there enough, or who do we have to contact? That mm -hmm. gateway will really be your portal to all these different uh, soy options that are available. And I hope 
those things can really bridge this gap between, okay, we have responsible soy and apparently there are commitments, but how can we bring, bring them together? Helena, I would love to hear your opinion as well on this topic. So uh, who, in your opinion, could help turn the tide to mainstream sustainable soy? Yeah, indeed, it's a very uh, good question. So going on about the accountability framework initiative that is getting traction, I think that's uh, that's very important. And one of my points, and I'll probably come back to it later, is that it's also important to build on what we already have, have learned and what we already have. And uh, that is indeed also those strong integrated standards uh, that have social and environmental criteria in them deforestation-free and conversion-free being one very important aspect, but not the only one. So that is, I think, important to recognize, to build on as examples and also as tools within the verification frameworks that the AFI, the Accountability Framework Initiative, requires. So I think that the best of worlds, that is my strong belief that you have to combine. So... Um, Turning the tide, uh, I, I talked about the traders, the, the pivotal role of traders. Uh, they have to feel the net closing or, or, or to, to, to feel the support, depending on your perspective. But uh, governments or buying countries have an important role, not only in, in setting a strong bar, but also supporting producing countries and the farmers to comply with it. I think that's uh, two sides of the coin of you know being uh, demanding is, of course, having a clear requirements, but also supporting producers to comply with it. And then in, in, the, in the producing countries themselves, uh, the, the floor of good governance can, can be raised by controlling legal compliance, having financial incentives in place for sustainable production and having good landscape planning, etc. Again, the financial institutions, trade finance, not looking away from their responsibility and their role. And of course, end buyers and their joining hands, yeah, Doutson already has said it, uh, between the European National Soy Initiative, have a collective asks towards the suppliers and think about uh, incentives And one of them, and we had just a webinar about it with the, with the Collaborative Soy Initiative, and that is longer-term agreements, because farmers, uh, there is a lot of volatility in the soy market. And I think, for example, uh, non-GM soy, uh, Proterra, uh, having declined, is that there is no security about you know selling the stuff. And I think that's important. Farmers also have to invest. They have to change practices. They have to invest. They have to know a little bit that there is interest from our side and that there is a commitment from our side on my longer run. So I think uh, those are uh, important aspects for, uh, for, for progress there. Helene, we can, we can say that the National Soy Initiatives, they bring together the most relevant stakeholders in the soy supply chain of a certain country, including the stakeholders with public commitments around sustainable soy uptake as well. So how do we ensure that commitments on responsible soy become purchase practices? In other words, that, for instance, companies put in practice what they preach. And how could the national soy initiatives support this transition? Yeah, I think, again, that transparency is, is key here, that it can be seen what a company is doing or a trader is doing, you know, by, by tracking their progress on Uh, complying with standards, for example, or uh, sourcing from particular uh, very low-risk areas, if, if you may. 
So that is important. And to have guidance like from the uh, Accountability Framework Initiative, uh, that is also important to have, uh, let's say, uh, practical tools. We have also the SOI uh, roadmap by the Consumer Goods Forum Forest Positive Coalition, the SOI toolkit, uh, and, and other tools, let's say, to have a practical guidance on supplier engagement. So supplier engagement, of course, is very, very much key, that people know what is expected from them, know what they have to do, in, in which time frames, and according to what criteria. So I think that making it practical and, uh, you know, and having uh, everybody in, in the game, knowing what to do, is, uh, is very important. So the National Soy Initiative, yeah, we learn from each other. Oh, the UK is doing this and ah, Denmark is doing that. Oh, you're, you're running quite ahead. Let's follow. <laughs> so I think we stimulate each other and uh, uh, learn from each other. And also we have this collective statement together. And uh, we're also talking about, you know, how do we engage with traders together? I think we're quite a volume together, you know, with the, with the National Soy Initiatives that, that are at the table in ANSI, uh, we re represent quite a volume. So I think we, we, we can be a voice there. And that is an important market signal. Yeah, and building up a bit on what you were saying, what in your opinion are the necessary next steps to maintain progress in a shifting world towards more sustainable soy? I think that a collaboration to scale up sustainable, responsible soy with quality. I think that's a bit of a slogan for me. Uh, that is, yes, we need scale. So you see a strong demand for, you know, a physical soy being uh, deforestation free. And the voices uh, sometimes say, I don't care about the rest. Let's first have the conversion and the deforestation free. I understand that because we have to make a scale and we have to make pace in that effort. But I think it's very important to combine that with, with quality criteria. So again, even if it's small percentages growing, uh, like uh, of the robust standards, uh, Arteris, Brotero, Dono, Soya, etc. Again, as examples for those criteria that you want to apply as tools in the verification for uh, also physical supply chains, I think that is very important. So scale up with quality, that, that is what I think should be done. So not only learning from what standards have done, but also from the landscape experiences like you guys in the IDH are trying to have, you know, working with farmers, with local conservation organizations, local governments. How do you move forward in full jurisdictions and sourcing landscapes? And, and that experience of how to engage people, how to make scale in the landscape. And if you combine that with, 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 with strong criteria, uh, I think that should be recognized as very important steps. And that recognition, I see a bit of uh, um, conflict there in the public space of the possibly not recognizing that there are multiple routes to Rome, to responsibility. The landscape work, the, the standard work, and the physical supply chain, clear asked with clear cut of dates, etc. They all have to play their role. So that is my role, also in the Dutch Soy Platform or in the Collaborative Soy Initiative to, yeah, to, to be a promoter of, of the combination of approaches and tools. So uh, I think we, we, that way we can make skill with, with quality. Thanks, Helene. These are very important insights and remarks indeed. So we are approaching the end of our podcast and I will give Dautzen the last word on what is about to come. So Dautzen, 
What results do you hope for in the next monitoring report? And are we on the right track to getting there? Well, since we are, of course, in 2021, there is not so much I can say to change what actually happened in 2020. That year is over already. But of course, for the future, I, I really hope that some trends will continue and others will stop. And that's actually sharing with what Helene was saying uh, already as well. I do hope that we move away a bit from this single issue approach and solutions. I think it's still very important to look into all these different attributes of sustainability. Although some of the single issues are very, very important, I really hope we will remain this, this, this broader holistic vision to sustainability. I also hope we are not going to leave high-risk areas just because we want to have segregated, clean supply chains. That's a danger that I really see, and I hope that we are staying involved with the production countries mm -hmm. to support tools like payment for ecosystem services, actions in the landscape with several stakeholders, but also compensation of farmers that are not executing their legal rights to convert their land. So that's something I really hope that will happen in the next years. And in terms of the, the landscape approach, what I see as a risk is that people now have the feeling oh, we used to do certification, now we, do, we have to do something with landscapes, and it's one or the other. And I think also in the communication, it's important to show that certification and work in the landscape go hand in hand. But that's a bit more uh, aspirational for the future. If we just dive into the techniques of the, of the report for 2020, uh, which we will actually start making now and publish at the end of this year, there are some things that we want to do better. First of all, we want to add more stakeholders, more soy outlets. I already mentioned the biofuels, the vegan and the vegetarian products to try to broaden a bit the scope of where all the soy is actually going to. And uh, in this summer, we, we are planning to do workshops with uh, feed associations, but also with uh, the NSIs to really discuss the methods and the data. So that will be something that we are working on the coming months. What we also want to do is report separately about the embedded soy and the direct soy. At this moment, we bring it together as one uh, soy footprint for a specific country, but it's important to make a bit of a distinction between what happens with the direct soy and what happens with the embedded soy. So we hope doing that will bring some more clarity. And I actually do think we also will still bring them together to have comparison between the, the previous years because that's actually why we want to do it. What we also will do is add a couple of more HS codes for embedded soy. I do estimate that we currently cover around 95% of all the incoming embedded soy, but it would be good to, uh, to move that up towards close to 100%. And in terms of embedded soy, it is also important that we investigate a bit more in depth where these embedded soy products are coming from. So where is the poultry coming from? Where is the beef coming from? Is that actually inter-European Union trade or is it also trade with foreign countries? Um, in the 2018 report, we saw that the amount of inter-European trade is very big and the, number, yeah, the volume of, of extra-European trade is, is smaller. But it's important to keep that in mind and to keep track of those developments. We have many plans to, uh, to improve it still. What we want to do as well is to work with the new RGRS conversion factors so that there's also a bit more alignment into conversion factors for embedded soy. There are, I think, uh, six or seven or eight different systems with conversion factors around. So a bit of harmonization is important there. We will also play our part. One thing that we also still 
find a bit mysterious is the fact that in some countries there is home mixing of soy into feed. So that soy is off the radar often of the, of the feed association that are members of FAFAC. So it's, it's also good to get a better insight in this home mixing. How big is it in the different countries and how much volume is going into that? And where are also the, challenge, uh, the channels to make a difference there? So to, to have this dialogue about responsible and conversion-free soy. Also with those farmers, often the bigger farmers, that do uh, home mixing. And last but not least, and that's also important, an important topic that we maybe can discuss a bit further, is the fact that we do now report about FEFA compliant, certified deforestation free soy, but also we make an estimation of the volume of soy coming from low risk areas. That has been a big wish of many companies because they say, if you are saying 20% is certified deforestation free, it feels a bit like 80% is produced with deforestation. And that is a bit of an overestimation, to say the least. So that's why there is now even a third percentage in the report saying this volume of soy is coming from regions where the risk of conversion is lower. But at this moment, that is those percentages, so those risk categories are made up by FEFAC with uh, international experts. And there is a very strong desire to make that harmonized and well-accepted, aligned uh, risk framework. So to work together with NGOs that have knowledge on the ground, with FEDIOL, with COSERAL, with Consumer Goods Forum, with Retail Soy Group, to not have different risk estimations, but to have an aligned uh, framework there. I think that's very important, but still, I do feel we will report about certified FEFA compliant, certified deforestation free, and then as a third element, soy coming from uh, low conversion risk areas. So that was a lot, but I think that are the main changes that we are foreseeing for the, for the 2020 report. And of course, we uh, will reach out to many of the stakeholders to see where we can work together to improve the data and also the results of the report. Dalton mentioned the low-risk areas, and indeed, I think it's very important to, to involve NGOs, not just the ones, let's say, with the feet on the ground, the most important ones, but also the ones, you know, looking critical at what that means, because it would run the risk of saying, well, just deforestation is uh, only uh, a criterion. It would risk also to say, well, you know, the whole of Europe is fine uh, and the whole of the U.S. is fine, while well, there's still problems on the ground there. And also uh, what you'd like to avoid is, uh, and Dawson has said that as well, is to avoid that high-risk areas are left behind on their own. You would like to reach out your hand to high-risk areas, particularly to invest there um, to improve practice. So I see yeah, low-risk areas, still that means you know, that there is a, a push uh, on the frontier elsewhere. You see what I mean? So it's it's Whatever we do and whatever we source, it adds up to, to the land pressure that we have on a global scale. So sustainably sourced from, yeah, from everywhere and also reaching out to high-risk landscapes particularly. That's, uh, that's the point. When you look to Brazil, especially Brazil as a sourcing, a risk sourcing area, we tend to think that the whole Brazil has a problem and the whole sector has a problem. So that's why I, I agree with both of you that risk-based approach is a good thing to go. I mean, landscape approach will not replace individual commitments from the companies and traders, but they can complement. 
right? They can give focus to those companies and traders to really act in critical landscapes. So it doesn't mean that, okay, if my soy is not coming from the Matopiba, I can wash my hands mm-hmm. and say, okay, I don't have a problem. But if I do an exercise and trace back my whole supply chain and see that, okay, my soy is coming from the south of Brazil with a negligible risk of deforestation, I can still act on the supply chain by supporting the Matopiba region with uh, knowledge, with uh, buying my credits. If I'm in, on that stage, mm-hmm. buying credits of responsible soy, I can buy it from the Matopiba region to support the region. And if I want to move forward and have physical soy, why not be connected to these risky landscapes? So I think that uh, they are all complementary approaches. I have my individual policy. I have my commitments. If my commitment is to buy certified soy, okay, that's fine. But I need to, I mean, the companies must include or try to work more on the landscape approach, even if they are not directly connected to that landscape. So Mm -hmm. that we can say that they are going beyond their own supply chain, but acting in the whole supply chain. I do concur with you a lot about, you know, reaching out with support to, uh, to certification and recognizing farmers who do well in risk landscapes. With that, we are reaching the end of this podcast. Thank you for listening and thanks to our speakers, Helene and Dautzen, for joining us today. Find out more in-depth information on responsible soy through the 2019 European Soy Monitor report that is now live on the IDH website. Join us next time on the IDH Sustainable Trade Podcast.